At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 43, Soviet Spymaster Beria. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. This episode is made possible by our Patreon supporters and the one-time contributions we receive through the website. So if you'd like to become a contributor to the show or follow us on social media for additional Cold War content, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Moreover, if you'd like to access our commercial-free episodes, consider becoming a Patreon supporter so you can skip over these ads to get straight to the history. In this episode, we will be examining the life of Levencha Beria. Naturally, this episode will touch on the history of the Soviet state security and what became the KGB during the period of the Cold War. Nonetheless, the episode will primarily focus on the life and influence of Beria and his impact on the course of the Cold War. This episode will not focus on all of his political decisions or events in his life, but will primarily center on his personal life to provide insight into his character and provide some good background for future episodes about the KGB and Soviet politics in the 1950s. As always, please forgive me for any mispronunciations. If you're interested in the organizational structure and history of the KGB, I would recommend checking out episode 16, about the early history of the KGB, and stay tuned as I plan on making additional episodes about the KGB during subsequent decades of the Cold War. If you haven't already done so, I would also recommend listening to episode 33 about the Soviet Empire for further background information to this episode. Indeed, Beria is a name that has popped up in many of our episodes. Like Molotov, he was one of Stalin's most important deputies from the late 1930s on. Beria was born in 1899, some 20 years after Stalin. He did not grow up fighting against the Tsarist regime like Stalin or Molotov. Indeed, he did not join the Bolshevik party until 1917. Beria was a member of the Minglarian ethnic group, a minority that lived in a low-lying area on the coast of the Black Sea, numbering roughly 100,000 people by 1900. Although they spoke their own language, it was related to Georgian, and they used Georgian as their written language. They also practiced the Orthodox faith like Georgians. Historically, though, they were more heavily influenced by the Roman and Byzantine empires versus the rest of Georgia. The Menglarians were primarily poor peasant people, and Beria came from a poor peasant family. The society was rigidly patriarchal, as in the rest of Georgia and the greater Russian Empire. They had been serfs bound to the land and a landlord until they were emancipated in 1867. Beria's mother, Marta Ivanova, was born in 1872. She was a deeply religious woman who attended church regularly. Her first husband died, from which she had one son. Her second marriage resulted in three more children, the second of whom was Leventia. Strangely, in a 1923 short autobiography, Beria mentions only his sister and niece, born in 1910, who were subsequently dependent on him. It is possible, although unknown, but his older brothers might have died in childhood. Nonetheless, Beria came from a large family with many cousins on both his mother and father's side. Beria's father died while he was attending middle school, and he was raised by his mother. Like Stalin, Beria was the product of a matriarchal family and a patriarchal society. Beria was a mediocre student and a troublesome prankster in school. After completing high school in 1915, Beria moved to Baku in Azerbaijan where he attended the Baku Polytechnic School for mechanical construction for the next four years. During this time, Beria supported himself and helped support his mother, sister, and niece by doing some office work during school holidays. Beria's mother at this time was working as a domestic servant. Beria's sister eventually married an engineer. His mother would, however, remain dependent on Beria the rest of his life. While at school, Beria and a group of friends organized an illegal Marxist study group and made contacts with workers' groups 
and continued to meet until the outbreak of the revolution in 1917. Baku during this period proved to be a receptive atmosphere to the Bolshevik message, as a result of its large numbers of oil workers, many of whom were non-Georgians. With the abdication of the Tsar in March 1917 and the establishment of a provisional government, Beria joined the Bolshevik party. His studies at university were cut short, though, as he was drafted in June. If you recall, the provisional government had decided to continue its participation in the First World War, despite the war's unpopularity and its high cost in treasure and blood. While in the army, Beria served on the Romanian front and was elected chairman of the Bolshevik Party Committee for his detachment, helping to spread the message of communism amongst Russian troops on the front line. With the subsequent October Revolution, which was actually in November, as this was before Russia switched to the Gregorian calendar and the end of the war, Beria returned to Baku in January 1918, where he resumed his studies and graduated in 1919 as an architect builder technician. During this period, he worked in the Secretariat of the Baku Soviet of Workers, Soldiers, and Peasants Deputies. He also worked briefly as a clerk in a factory. The rest of his time was devoted to his studies. The Bolsheviks, if you recall from our early episodes, were locked in a bitter struggle for control of the country with counter-revolutionary white forces. Baku was the only city in Transcaucasia that the Bolsheviks controlled. That summer, 1918, the Turks threatened to take the city, and the food situation in the city had grown desperate as people survived on chestnuts. The socialist revolutionaries then took the city over, backed by the local Armenians. If you recall, the socialist revolutionaries were another radical party the Bolsheviks had competed with in Russia. The Armenians had a large ethnic presence in Baku. The British arrived in mid-August, but were forced to flee in a month, and the Turks captured the city, massacring thousands of Christians and creating a panic. By November 1918, Turkish troops withdrew, and a new party, the Muscovite, was in control of the city, remaining in power until 1920 when the Bolsheviks retook the city. In the autumn of 1919, Beria was assigned by the Bolsheviks to work as a spy and to infiltrate the Muscovite government. Beria's brief stint as a spy launched his career in espionage and would return to haunt him in later life as his political enemies claimed he was a double agent. In 1920, Beria gave up his undercover work to take a job with the Custom House in Baku. Meanwhile, the Cheka had established an Azerbaijan chapter there. Although theoretically independent, like all the nominally independent chapters of the Cheka across the Soviet republics, they were in reality controlled from Moscow and the Russian Cheka, which in turn took its orders from the Politburo. The party's hold over Azerbaijan was shaky at best, and they needed strong political police to preserve their control of the region. Muslim nationalists, Turks, socialist revolutionaries, and Mensheviks fought with the Bolsheviks for control of the region. Some regions of Azerbaijan had indeed descended into anarchy with no ruling authority. Therefore, they were hiring politically reliable men like Beria to its ranks. He was a young party member who had undercover and intelligence experience. Ironically, though, in the confusion of the period, Beria had been accidentally arrested, but the mistake was acknowledged and he was free to leave. Beria's personal motives for joining the Cheka during the period are unclear. Maybe he shared many of the lofty beliefs in communism as his peers, but we do know that he was a very ambitious and energetic man. His first boss was Bagarov, an Azerbaijani who rose to become party chief of Azerbaijan in the 1930s. Bagarov was to play an important role in Beria's political career. The two men came from similar backgrounds and were willing to commit murder and torture for the sake of maintaining Bolshevik rule and in furthering their careers. The two became unusually close for the period and in the 30 years of Stalin's rule never moved against each other. It was only after Beria's arrest in 1953 that Bagarov turned against him in an effort to save his own life. In 1921, Beria married Nino Gigakori, the niece of a leading Bolshevik leader in Georgia. By 1922, the Bolsheviks had a firmer control of Azerbaijan. Nonetheless, there was a serious opposition to communist rule in Georgia, and Beria was transferred to Tbilisi. Georgia was in a state of insurrection, and the party had very few ties with the Georgian peasants. The peasants were angered over land issues and the poor state of the economy. The proletariat, the traditional base of the Bolsheviks, was even opposed to the party, as the majority were Mensheviks. The intelligentsia, as well, was equally hostile to the new regime. One group of Georgian Bolsheviks favored a soft approach, advocating for tolerance towards the Mensheviks, greater democracy within the party, gradual land reform, and a greater role for private trade. 
Another group, which included Stalin, who was the People's Commissar for Nationalities at the time, advocated a harder line. They supported uniting all of the Transcaucasian republics economically and politically and won the policy battle over Georgia, and gradually the sovereignty of the Transcaucasian republics was eroded from 1922 on. 1922 saw several major rebellions against Soviet authority in different parts of Georgia. No official numbers around arrests or executions are available from this period, but judging by the accounts of the period, executions were an everyday affair, and it wasn't unusual to mass execute people either. Cases of anti-Soviet resistance almost always resulted in the death sentence, and reprisals were often inflicted on the families of those accused. Many were arrested for simply being a member of the wrong class. In October 1923, the Mensheviks united the various anti-Bolshevik groups into a secret committee for the independence of Georgia to organize a general uprising. The Cheka, with Beria in a leading role, infiltrated the group and carried out a mass arrest of its leaders. But the opposition went ahead and launched a massive uprising, which occurred in August 1924. The suppression of the Mensheviks by Beria and the Cheka was a bloodbath, decimating the Mensheviks movement in Georgia. During 1925 to 1926, it's estimated that at least 500 socialists were shot without trial. Many of Beria's reports made it to the desk of Stalin, and sometime during this period, they became acquainted. Beria made it a point to be on hand any time Stalin traveled to the Caucasus for vacation. By the end of 1926, Beria was named head of the new GPU in Georgia, successor to the Cheka. Despite the Soviet victory in crushing the Mensheviks, Beria and the GPU had many enemies, and there was at least one known attempt on his life during this period. By the late 1920s, Beria was visiting Stalin often, usually while Stalin was taking vacation on the Black Sea. Even when Stalin was in Sochi and not Georgia, Beria took it upon himself and the Georgian GPU to provide Stalin security, thus having an excuse for frequent visits. In November 1930, he became a member of the Party Bureau, the top leadership body of the Georgian Central Committee, and thus involved with policymaking. At 32, this was a remarkable achievement for a man so young. Many of his fellow Georgians were unhappy with their new committee member. He had been complicit in the deaths of thousands of Georgians through the 1920s, and many felt he had achieved his position through underhanded practices. One secretary from the Tbilisi Party Committee legend, as it left the Republic rather than work for Beria. Several heads of the Central Committee departments protested by not going to work on Beria's first day. Despite this opposition, Beria did not waver in taking control over the Georgian party and state. Beria was intent on removing the old Bolshevik guard and replacing them with his own loyal people, which is exactly what he did over the next four years. While Beria was building up his power base in Georgia, he continued to pay homage to Stalin, his benefactor. Almost daily, Stalin's picture was on the front page. In 1935, Beria opened a restored birthplace of Stalin at Gorky, which had a large marble pavilion built over it. Beria also took care of Stalin's elderly mother. He arranged to have her move to Tbilisi, and together with his wife Nino, looked after her. When Stalin's children came to visit their grandmother, they stayed with Beria at his grand apartment or his dhaka outside the city. Indeed, it is said that Stalin's children became quite close to Beria and his family. In 1935, Stalin himself came to see his mother and stayed with Beria. Stalin did not attend his mother's funeral in June 1937, violating Georgian rituals with death, but designated Beria as a surrogate in his place. Despite these connections, politically speaking, Beria was still on the outside. He was far from the Kremlin and could only see Stalin occasionally when he came to visit. To get closer to Stalin, Beria would have to do more. He quickly learned that Stalin loved self-aggrandizement. He loved gifts, compliments, and he loved rumors. Beria also recognized that Stalin was an extremely jealous man. Beria would also have to beef up his resume if he wanted a seat in the Politburo as well. So he published a book on the history of the Bolshevik organization in Transcaucasia, although it wasn't written by him, but a team of ghostwriters. He was also delivered a two-day lecture about the book at Tbilisi party headquarters. The lecture was published in full in Pravda, the leading paper of the Soviet Union, akin to the New York Times, and 100,000 copies of the book were printed with an English translation, amongst other languages. Stalin's biographer praised the book for filling in the gap in the study of Bolshevism and proclaiming it in importance for teaching the, of Bolshevik history for future generations. He also constructed his own cult of personality. 
This decision was made with Stalin's blessing and was designed to stress Beria's association with Stalin. It was carefully coordinated to parallel on a smaller scale Stalin's cult, which by this time had reached outlandish proportions. By 1936, the cult of Beria was at full blossom. Across Transcaucasia and in Georgia especially, factories, collective farms, theaters, schools, and sports stadiums were named after him. His portrait was displayed everywhere in Georgia and in textbooks accomplished by praise for his wisdom and genius. The press was filled with the news of his achievements and his meetings with factory workers and peasants. Letters of love and praise for Beria were printed in the newspapers throughout 1936 and songs and poems were dedicated to him. Beria also moved his family into a spacious mansion and had a white stucco villa built on the Black Sea not far from Stalin's villa. Beria's villa, which served as his vacation home, was surrounded by acres of vineyards and fruit trees. Nevertheless, Beria did face a setback to his power. The Transcaucasian Federation was dissolved in the new 1936 constitution, with Beria left with only his leadership in Georgia by 1937. 1937 also marked the start of Stalin's purges. Georgia's Communist Party and its bureaucracy, like the rest of the Soviet Union, was decimated. Stalin's purge was designed to eliminate all possible opposition to his rule, ensuring that those that did survive lived in absolute fear. In Stalin's mind, his security depended on the insecurity of those that served him and the population in general. Area, although he faced few enemies who sought his destruction in Georgia, was still at the mercy of Stalin. Beria had systematically built up his power base in Georgia through the early to mid-1930s, yet the purges of 37-38 created chaos and disorganization within Georgia, even forcing him to sacrifice some of his most loyal henchmen. For the most part, though, Beria and many of his colleagues managed to survive the purges. Beria also took the opportunity to eliminate his political opponents in the chaos of the purge, one of which was an Ekabizan official, Mikhail Lakabo. Beria had his wife arrested and subsequently beat her every night for refusing to sign a document saying that her husband was a traitor. They then beat her 14-year-old son in front of her. Lakabo's wife finally died as a result of her many beatings and her son was sent to the gulag. Sometime later, he wrote Beria requesting he and two friends be freed. Beria instead ordered the three boys to be taken to Tbilisi, where they were shot. By this time, all of Lakabo's family and friends had either been shot or imprisoned. Beria also settled old scores with the Georgian literary community as well. In 1934, he insisted on them writing songs, poems, and stories fawning Stalin. Many were less than enthusiastic about the task or failed to produce the flattering Stalinist works. In 1937-38, these decisions came back to haunt them with widespread arrests, Others chose to commit suicide versus life in a labor camp. In the end, some 25% of the writers' union membership in Tbilisi perished during the purge. By early 1938, though, the momentum of the purges started to weaken. The Kremlin blamed local party leaders for taking the purges too far and for being overzealous in their hunt for traitors, thus allowing Stalin to shift the blame of the purges from himself to those who carried out his orders. Beria moved quickly to be on the right side of the narrative and spoke on the need to rectify mistakes that had taken place in Georgia. Stalin, it appears, had decided that it was time to end the purge, but not until a final sweep of arrests and trials as the NKVD arrested 57,200 more victims. Georgia was given a quota of arresting another 1,500 people, with all cases being decided and closed within two months. The NKVD chief, Nikolai Zizov, seemed to have been preparing for the arrest of Beria, but Beria was tipped off and took a plane to Moscow to meet with Stalin to beg for his life. He reminded Stalin of his years of loyal service and professed his innocence. His case was further strengthened by the fact that he was supported by the head of the heavy industries, Lazar Kajanov, whom Izanov was also moving against. Kajanov and Beria were able to convince Stalin of their innocence and Izov's guilt. Although Stalin might have already decided to use Izov as a scapegoat for the tragedies of the purge. This was made easier for Stalin as Izov had a reputation for cruelty and brutality. He was despised and disliked by most in the Soviet Union, even those who benefited from his purges. This made it extremely easy for Stalin to blame him. Indeed, most people wanted to blame him rather than Stalin because it was hard for them to believe that Stalin had committed such acts. 
Stalin decided to appoint Beria as deputy chief of the NKVD under Izov, and in August 1938, Beria moved to, to Moscow. In Georgia, his cult of personality remained intact, and Georgia and Transcaucasia continued to be an important base of support for him. Slowly, Beria, with Stalin's blessing, undermined Izov and began to compile evidence against him. Steadily, Beria had Izov's people dismissed and replaced with his own loyal men. Finally, Beria published his report that the NKVD officials had committed gross violations of legal norms, including the use of torture for confessions during the purge. The resolution forbid the NKVD from continuing their policy of mass arrests and exiles. Henceforth, the arrests were to be made only with the consent of the court. Only politically reliable members would be appointed to the NKVD, and NKVD officers were warned that they could be prosecuted for breaking Soviet law. Inzov saw the writing on the wall and tried to resign versus being arrested, which was Stalin and Beria's next logical step. On November the 23rd, Enzov resigned, and Beria became the head of the NKVD. Nevertheless, Enzov was still arrested, tried, and shot. I want to take a quick break here and thank our Patreon contributors and those who have made one-time contributions to the podcast. We appreciate your donations. They make this podcast possible. That being said, if you enjoy episodes like this, which focus on secondary leaders of the Cold War like Beria, Molotov, or Forrestal, or episodes that focus on espionage and security like our episodes on the KGB or CIA, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or make a donation so we can continue to make episodes like these. These episodes take hours of my time to research, read, and write, and it costs m money to buy sources, not to mention the cost to host the website and the podcast. Your support goes a long way to make these episodes possible. If you're tired of hearing me beg for money the way Beria pleaded with Stalin to save his life, consider becoming a Patreon supporter to get our commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. By all accounts, Beria was an astute politician who made good use of extensive social and political networks he built up in Transcaucasia and within the NKVD and state security apparatus. He cultivated a clique of supporters who owed their allegiance to him via positions and favors. Beria was responsible for domestic intelligence as well as domestic security. Foreign intelligence, the vast gulag system, and with it a major part of the Soviet economy, and in 1945, he was placed in charge of the Soviet atomic bomb project. Once in charge, Beria went about eliminating the undesirable elements of the NKVD, purging all of Enzov's supporters, executing them, or imprisoning them by the hundreds. By 1939, most of these men had been removed and replaced with Georgians loyal to Beria. Other heads of the Secret Service before Beria, like Izov, lacked an autonomous power base and could be easily removed. Beria, in contrast, did have a regional power base of support and an established patronage network, which he transformed into the dominant elite of the NKVD. Many have asked why Stalin would allow the creation of such a situation given his paranoia. Stalin was annoyed with this. He hated family circles and ethnic cliques of power. On more than one occasion, he denounced the Georgian takeover of the NKVD. Nevertheless, the reasons he may have let it persist is he had little choice. The purge of the NKVD simply left too few experienced administrators to run the Soviet regime. Beria's team of ruthless former police commanders provided the type of expertise necessary for the efficient running of the NKVD. Stalin did remind Beria, though, that he was still being watched and not beyond reprisals. Like Stalin, Beria was Georgian. Although a latecomer to Stalin's inner circle, he quickly became one of Stalin's favorites and arguably the second most powerful man in the Soviet Union. Stalin was a Russophile and thoroughly Russified, and did on occasion shun his Georgian roots, but at a personal level, his Georgian heritage shaded much of his thought and actions. This gave Beria a unique insight with Stalin. Their relations were not always smooth, but even in the beginning, Beria was able to weather political crises as he was more familiar with Stalin's culture and values as they had both grown up in Georgia, giving him a special awareness into Stalin's thoughts and feelings his other Soviet colleagues didn't have. As the only other Georgian in Stalin's inner circle, Beria was, in a sense, Stalin's alter ego. He was a reminder of Stalin's origins, and the two often spoke Georgian to one another. Stalin often addressed him as Koba, the moniker he had used as a young revolutionary, the name of a Georgian hero. Despite their difference in age, Stalin and Beria had a very similar life. Beria, like Stalin, was from a poor peasant family and had grown up in rural Georgia. 
He too lost his father when he was young and was raised by his mother. Beria knew how to flatter Stalin and praised him constantly. He also knew how to play on Stalin's paranoia and feed his suspicions. Beria also became Stalin's unofficial toastmaster at endless dinners, forcing guests to consume huge amounts of alcohol to Stalin's amusement. Beria often made crude and offensive jokes and practical jokes at the expense of his colleagues, which Stalin loved. Stalin wasn't close with his family beyond his daughter and hated to be alone. So he insisted that his subordinates keep him company during all his waking hours. They even went on vacation with him, meaning Beria spent much of his time cultivating his relationship with Stalin. As head of the NKVD, Beria also set about reorganizing the Gulag. He ended needless or sadistic torture that served no end. He ordered the release of several thousands of prisoners. Arrests and executions continued, but on a much smaller scale. Beria brought a cold efficiency to his office. Gone were the days of often crude and hysterical arrests. Police powers did not diminish, they just became less dysfunctional and more institutionalized. If you're interested in learning more about the Gulag system, check out episode 34. Foreign intelligence work was also reorganized and expanded after 1939, which we reviewed in episode 16 about the early history of the KGB. Within the NKVD, Beria was greatly respected. He provided his subordinates with job security as well as safety from execution and the chaos of the earlier periods. NKVD agents could perform their jobs without worrying about their lives and that of their families. Beria also doubled their salary upon becoming the new NKVD chief. At the 18th Party Congress in 1939, the NKVD was represented by 57 delegates, while eight NKVD officials were elected to the Central Committee. Beria also became a candidate member of the Politburo, a status not reached by his predecessor, Izoff, until a year after he became NKVD chief. Nonetheless, Beria's rank remained lower than that of Izoff as Commissar of State Security, not becoming General Commissar until January 1941, which is the equivalent to the rank of Field Marshal in the Soviet Army or Five-Star General in the U.S. military. Beria did not arouse much hatred in the Soviet public, despite his reputation for extreme brutality in Georgia. Details of his early career were not well known outside of Georgia. Besides, in contrast to Izov, he looked like a saint. His appearance also helped with this perception. He looked very scholarly with his balding head and wireframe glasses. He and his family lived in a Dhaka outside of Moscow, where he took up target shooting and in the evening would watch American and German films translated by his son, Sergo, who learned to speak both fluently. A maid, a German woman who Beria protected after the outbreak of the war, looked after his son, and Beria would disappear for long periods of time. By most accounts, this veneer hides a darker aspect of his personality, namely the fact that he was a serial rapist. Beria's bodyguard claimed that Beria had affairs with 39 women and contracted syphilis, which he had to undergo treatment for in 1943. Another bodyguard claimed that Beria would pick up young women in Moscow and bring them to back to his house, where he would rape them. One victim's husband, a famous World War II fighter pilot, had himself arrested in order to draw attention to the rape of his wife. Beria's wife, Nino, and other former NKVD agents deny these stories of Beria raping women and carrying on affairs. They argued that Beria would not have had the time to carry out such a lifestyle. Beria's son made a similar argument, but did admit that his father had other children out of wedlock. Edward Ellis Smith, a young American diplomat in Moscow after the war, said that he saw women being brought to Beria's house day and night. Nino also increasingly built a separate life from her husband. She hated Moscow and wanted to move back to Georgia. World War II changed much for Beria, like it did everyone else in the Soviet Union. Like Stalin, Beria was aware of the warning signs of the impending German invasion and failed to act. After the start of the war and the initial crushing defeats of the Soviet Union that saw entire armies wiped out, Stalin lost his nerve to lead the Soviet Union and declared everything lost, which is presumably why Molotov announced to the Soviet people the beginning of the hostilities. Eventually, Beria, Molotov, and Kosygin and Veroslav persuaded Stalin to get a hold of himself and to lead the nation. Beria had wartime responsibilities that expanded well beyond those of the peacetime NKVD. Domestic affairs were more or less left to him and Malenkov. Beria oversaw the enormous evacuation of defense industries from the western regions of the Soviet Union to beyond the Urals and converting peacetime industry to wartime production. 
He oversaw the Gulag system, which saw a massive expansion as a result of mass arrests of minority groups and POWs, which fed labor needs for the camps, which were now focused around producing fuel, munitions, steel, and weapons. He also oversaw the expansion of internal security and domestic intelligence forces, which numbered around 700,000, which performed rear area security and in some cases direct combat functions. Often NKVD units operated in a reserve capacity. They helped to root out enemy agents and guarded prisoners and performed garrison duties and liberated villages, towns, and cities. The NKVD also helped to arm, lead, and supply partisans behind enemy lines, which we reviewed in episode 16. Barry himself stayed away from the front. As far as we know, he visited the front lines on only two occasions in August 1942 when he visited the Transcaucasian front. Barry's son, Sergo, joined a special radio unit and avoided combat at the front. Perhaps his most important role during this period was playing policeman to the Red Army. Stalin had a deep mistrust of the army and feared with the war and its newfound power and celebrity with the Soviet people, it might challenge him for control of the Soviet Union. Therefore, Beria kept a watchful eye on the officers and men of the Red Army. Beria didn't have much love for the army either and saw them as a bureaucratic rival. In turn, the Red Army despised Beria. He was constantly interfering in military matters and trying to intimidate officers. Beria and Stalin were especially jealous of Zhukov's popularity, which rose sharply after the Soviet victories at the Battle of Moscow, Stalingrad, and Kursk. Beria took it upon himself personally to gather compromising material about Zhukov. Nevertheless, despite Beria's and Stalin's distrust and dislike of the army, they kept loose police controls on the army. They recognized that the Nazis were a larger threat to them than the Red Army. As the Red Army moved westward in 1944, the NKVD were charged with clearing liberated territory of rebellious nationalist groups, especially in the Baltic and Ukraine, which saw insurgent activity into the early 1950s. The NKVD also had to parse through the 354,590 Soviet POWs, which had been captured by the Germans. 36,630 were subsequently arrested by the NKVD for treason. With the Germans in retreat, the Communist Party started to reassert its control over the army. Stalin had allowed the army to take a leading role to save the Soviet Union, but it was an emergency allowance, not a permanent change to the Soviet political structure. Besides, Stalin had mastered military affairs sufficiently to become deeply involved in military strategy and was presiding over the war against Germany. One of the first victims was Zhukov. After his capture of Berlin in May 1945 and his leading of the final victory parade, he was removed from the Central Committee and exiled as the commander of the Odessa Military District. Stalin had wanted to arrest him, but he was too popular with the people and the rest of the Army General Staff. The names of other great Soviet commanders also ceased to be mentioned in the press. Instead, Stalin was given all the credit for winning the war. Hence, the party in Stalin with the NKVD and Beria, not far behind, would become the leading forces in the Soviet society once again. In July, Beria and the security forces were given military ranks, and Beria was made a field marshal, the same rank as Zhukov. This confrontation with the army would come back to haunt Beria, though, as the military and Zhukov would back Khrushchev and the 1953 coup against him. Despite all of Beria's power, though, he remained a relatively obscure figure outside of the Soviet Union. Beria received very little news attention outside of Georgia, which is probably the way Beria liked it given Stalin's extreme jealousy. He did attend the major war conferences in Tehran and Yalta, but foreign diplomats had little contact with him. He was intensely suspicious of the Western Allies. When they invited the Soviets to the British Embassy for dinner, he had the room thoroughly searched for two hours for bugs. Indeed, the Soviets were actually spying on the Allies at the conference, as they had their rooms bugged. After the war, Beria took over direction of the project to build the atomic bomb. Beria took charge of organizing the scientists on the project and in providing technical espionage to Soviet scientists on the American bomb, along with the resources needed to facilitate the development of the Soviet atomic bomb, which was a massive project in war-torn Soviet Union. If you're interested in learning more about how the Soviets developed the atomic bomb, check out episode 17 on the Soviet atomic bomb. During this period, to concentrate his time on the development of the bomb, Beria stepped down from leadership of the NKVD to his deputy, Karlov. Despite stepping down from the NKVD, Beria's political standing showed no sign of decline. 
and the protocol of the leadership, he held the position of third in line to Stalin just after Molotov, the foreign minister. He also held considerable influence in Georgia and had strong ties with Melenkov, who oversaw major Soviet industries. Beria also enjoyed considerable influence with Stalin in matters of foreign policy, an area Stalin considered his exclusive preserve after the war. Beria encouraged Stalin to push for territories in eastern Turkey, which eventually helped push Turkey into the arms of the Americans and NATO, which were reviewed in episode 10. Beria also encouraged Stalin to take a firm line in Iran, which led to troubles with the United States and the Great Britain. Like Stalin, Beria also held conflicting views about Germany. On the one hand, he wanted to strip Germany of her industries and send them to the Soviet Union. But at the same time, he wanted to maintain enough equipment and industry to mine uranium in Saxony for the Soviet atomic bomb. Beria faced a setback in his power when Andrei Zendanov, the chairman of the Russian Communist Party, challenged him, first by trying to remove Malenkov with his protege. Beria was able to save Melenkov, though, through Stalin's intervention. Stalin's health had started to decline, and he was often absent, and Zandanov had become more threatening. Stalin reportedly suffered a minor stroke in 1945 and a second one in 1947. His mind, from all accounts, was still sharp, but he spent less time at the Kremlin and delegated more and more responsibilities. From 1947 to 1951, Stalin's annual vacation to the Black Sea lasted from late August to late November or early December. Although he did receive diplomats and visits, the day-to-day management of the state he left to his lieutenants. Left to their own devices, his lieutenants naturally competed for power. The struggle was for power, but it was fought through policy. In 1946, Zaninov launched a campaign against the decadent Western influence in the arts and culture. He was able to push through a tough ideological line domestically. As far as Beria was concerned, he wasn't necessarily opposed to Zaninov's anti-Western policy, but he was opposed to Zaninov acquiring more power. Beria was not like Molotov and many Soviet officials who tried to survive by keeping a low profile. Beria was ambitious and aimed for a leadership position second only to Stalin, but another element was more threatening, Stalin's persecution of the Jews. Beria, it was said, looked Jewish, even though he was not. He also had made strong ties to the Jewish community in Georgia, and Beria's sister-husband was Jewish, and several of his lieutenants were Jewish. This was not to say that Beria was pro-Jewish. He had deported thousands of Ukrainian and Polish Jews to Siberia in 1941 and wasn't above making anti-Semitic jokes. Nonetheless, these Jewish connections could be used by his enemies to bring him down. By 1947, Beria had fallen to fourth place in the Soviet hierarchy behind Molotov and Zaninov. He also faced challenges to his position back home in Georgia. Two of Beria's leading supporters were removed from the Georgian Central Committee. One of his earliest supporters was also removed from the position of MGB slash KGB chief of Georgia. A month later, another of his lieutenants, the head of propaganda for Georgia, was removed. In the West, many were unaware of Beria's precarious position His picture even appeared on Time magazine in 1948 as the head of Soviet security, even though he had stepped down from that position. Nevertheless, the danger to Beria quickly faded with the sudden death of Zadonov in August 1948. The anti-Jewish campaign culminated with the doctor's plot, which Beria denounced as a hoax after Stalin's death. He also took it upon himself to revive Jewish culture after the death of Stalin. The death of Zaninov resulted in the upsurge of influence for both Beria and Melenkov. They set about erasing Zaninov's influence by bringing false charges against his former lieutenants. By late 1949, the Zaninov faction had all but been eradicated. On Beria's 50th birthday, Stalin awarded the Order of Lenin to him for outstanding service to the Communist Party and the Soviet people. Molotov, as we saw in episode 13, fell from favor with Stalin. Malenkov was a typical bureaucrat, although he was cunning and intelligent, he wasn't in the same league as Beria. Beria was now the chief contender for Stalin's mantle. His only drawback was that he was Georgian. Nonetheless, given Stalin's paranoia and Beria's ambition, it was only a matter of time until their relationship started to break down. Stalin began to distrust Beria, and Beria became increasingly disdainful of Stalin behind his back. By the early 1950s, everyone knew Stalin was living on borrowed time. Stalin left no clear line of succession as he felt any move by him to do so would undermine his authority, and he wasn't planning to die if he could help it. Death of Zaninov also brought Beria to the forefront as the greatest threat to Stalin's rule. Therefore, Stalin sought to raise another official to play off Beria. 
That official was Nikita Khrushchev, the first secretary of the Ukrainian Republic. Stalin saw Khrushchev as a counterbalance to the Beria-Molotov alliance and thus supported Khrushchev's rise in the Kremlin hierarchy. Khrushchev soon took control of the collective farming system in the Moscow Communist Party. Beria tried to have Stalin's staff be composed of Georgians loyal to him, but Stalin, not trusting Beria, had them all fired and replaced by an all-Russian staff. Beria continued to oversee the security apparatus, but it was no longer all packed with his supporters. In 1950, Beria was still a leader in the Georgian Central Committee. He still presided over important party functions and ceremonies, and he retained a residence in Tbilisi. His cult of personality in Georgia was still strong, and he influenced policy in Georgia, some of which was in opposition to the policy from Moscow. The primary reason he was able to maintain his influence in Georgia, despite having lived in Moscow the last 12 years, was his patronage system, which rewarded supporters with jobs. If they demonstrated their loyalty, they knew they were secure in their positions. Those from Beria's region, the Mangarians, held all the top positions in Georgia and were fiercely loyal to him. There were Georgian politicians who hated and resented Beria and the clique of Milagarians and were willing to work with others to undermine him. Meanwhile, the Supreme Soviet subdivided Georgia into new regions and in 1951 diluting Beria's power. Then in January 1952, the Georgian first secretary was brought up on corruption charges. From April to December 1952, the Georgian Communist Party was purged of many of his supporters. Stalin, by this point, was preparing for another major purge. Only Khrushchev and Melenkov remained above suspicion. Khrushchev used this opportunity to bring in his own allies into the Central Committee and the MGB. Despite the attacks on his power base, Beria was still holding his own. Many of his supporters had been arrested, but he managed to save many others by moving them into lesser positions. He also still had allies in Armenia and Azerbaijan in his alliance with Melenkov. Beria also maintained influence in the security apparatus as well, although control at this point was mixed between him and Khrushchev. Fortuitously, in 1953, Stalin also died, once again removing the immediate danger. Stalin's death brought uncertainty as the Soviet management was unclear about how to move ahead without Stalin's leadership. The chief contenders to succeed Stalin were Beria and Khrushchev, then a powerful Central Committee secretary. Once Stalin died, Beria immediately took formal control of the vast Soviet security apparatus, a move that was seen by many of his colleagues as threatening, especially to Khrushchev. Melenkov became head of the Council of Ministers, and Khrushchev was forced to step down as the head of the Communist Party for Moscow. At Stalin's funeral, it seemed to be more of a triumphative, consisting of Malenkov, Molotov, and Beria. Molotov seemed to appear to be genuinely shaken by the death of Stalin, and most of his speech focused on Stalin's accomplishments over the years, whereas Beria and Malenkov were more sanguine and spoke more about the future of the Soviet Union. Despite Malenkov's newfound powers and responsibilities, he was still a puppet of Beria's. Malenkov lacked the dictatorial ambitions of Stalin or later Khrushchev, Despite the power of the Beria and the Malenkov alliance, though, they couldn't disregard the views of other high-ranking party members. Many members were unhappy about the quick ascent of Beria and Malenkov to positions of such great authority, so Beria made sure the press emphasized the importance of the Central Committee versus the leadership of Malenkov. Meanwhile, though, Beria moved to expand his power base. He introduced a broad policy of liberalization and de-Stalinization in order to win popular support. In the old days, the cult of Stalin and state terror kept people in line. But with Stalin gone, there was general concern in the leadership about maintaining their authority without the legitimacy of Stalin. For Beria, he saw it as a chance to legitimize the regime and to change his public image from police chief to that of liberal statesman. Much of the Soviet leadership, including Khrushchev, wanted to deconstruct Stalinism, but there were distinct dangers for Beria in taking this action. For one, the population had been indoctrinated in the cult of Stalin for decades, many from childhood. The population might resist such a rapid change in society and ideology. Second, how far should Soviet leadership push to de-Stalinize society? If they move too far too fast, they might undermine the legitimacy of the party to run the country. Thirdly, Beria was playing a dangerous game by taking a lead role in this movement. His colleagues might use it as a pretext to remove him from power. Beria's reform programs to roll back Stalinist policies also caused great concern amongst the elite. He eliminated many of the gulag building projects that made little sense and released about a million gulag inmates and relaxed conditions in the camps. 
As mentioned earlier, he also renounced the doctor's plot and ended the repression of the Jews. The Justice Ministry announced that Stalinist justice, police terror, and arbitrary mass arrest were a thing of the past. They would no longer be permitted. There was even talk of reforming the criminal code in order to protect people from unjust arrest. He also moved to become the defender of minority peoples within the Soviet Empire. Beria also introduced a silent end to Stalin's cult of personality. His name was mentioned less and less frequently in the news. The new emphasis was on the collective leadership of the Central Committee and less on Stalin's legacy. The Central Committee also passed a resolution prohibiting the display of leader portraits during holiday demonstrations, a hallmark of the Stalinist era. In foreign policy, he moved to bring a truce in Korea and an end to the Korean War. He also tried to bring about a rapprochement with Tito and Yugoslavia. Nevertheless, the struggle between Khrushchev and Beria grew fiercer as Beria tried to make changes in Ukraine, Khrushchev's power base. Beria sought to remove Russians from leading posts within Ukraine and replace them with Ukrainians. He also wanted to relax restrictions on the Catholic Church in Ukraine. The policies that Beria was advocating, if they would have succeeded, would not have only changed the nature of the Soviet system, but would have opened the door to a partial dismantling of the Soviet Empire. To be clear, Beria wasn't advocating democracy or capitalism, but he wanted to back away from the rigid, centralized control of the Stalinist state. Again, many of the Central Committee wanted to see reforms to the Soviet system, and Khrushchev would adopt many of Beria's policies in his de-Stalinization program in the late 1950s. But Beria's moves were destabilizing the regime, and he wasn't getting the buy-in from the rest of the Central Committee to take such bold and dangerous reforms. Beria's more lax policies towards the regimes in Eastern Europe also worried the Soviet leadership. These regimes were still relatively young and dependent on Moscow for legitimacy and stability, and when a revolt broke out in East Germany in 1953, many blamed Beria, including Molotov and the head of the defense, Bulgarin. For these reasons, Khrushchev, supported by elements of the government and army, ousted Beria in a palace coup. How the coup transpired is not entirely clear. People who were involved give different accounts, and some individuals like Khrushchev told different people different accounts of what happened. Given Beria's immense influence within the security apparatus, it wasn't going to be easy to arrest him, so Khrushchev convinced Melenkov to betray his old comrade by inviting him to the Central Committee meeting to speak on a subject and to vote on some important issues. As planned, Beria arrived to the meeting. As legend has it, Khrushchev then took to the floor to speak and began to denounce Beria. Bulgarin and then Molotov followed suit denouncing him. Mikoyan spoke up in Beria's defense, though. At this point, Molenkov, who was chairing the meeting, was supposed to sum things up, but lost his nerve and could not speak. Khrushchev then declared that the Beria should be removed from all his posts. Molenkov was supposed to put the motion to a vote, but panicked and pushed a secret button for the generals waiting in the next room. Armed men, led by Zhukov, came in with pistols drawn and ordered Beria to put his hands up. They then led Beria into a waiting room. Some say he was shot there by Zhukov, others that he waited until night to sneak Beria out of the building past his guards which were still guarding the building. Beria's son, however, claims that Beria was arrested and shot by Khrushchev at his home. The arrest took many by surprise, as the plot had not been revealed to all. The military was key to the plot as Beria had two divisions of security forces at his disposal in Moscow. They were personally loyal to him and were specifically trained to deal with potential coups and political crises. Khrushchev had no more popular support than Beria, so the plot had to be kept secret as there was no way to know how the Soviet populace would respond in a coup. Beria's arrest was probably a highly risky coup that succeeded more through luck than anything else. Although the plotters tried to keep Beria's arrest a secret, news traveled quickly and the army rounded up most of his associates right away. His wife and son were subsequently put under house arrest and moved out of the city. It was then said that he was moved to a secret bunker under heavy guard. On July the 7th, 1953, the Central Committee voted unanimously for his expulsion from the party and for him to be put on trial, although he might have already been dead at this point. His portraits were swiftly removed and his name erased from public buildings. Soviet public reaction was mixed. Most Soviet citizens expressed skepticism and saw it for what it was, a palace coup and a post-war struggle amongst the elite. No tears were spilt for Beria, but they didn't believe the public charges against him either. In Georgia, however, where Beria was a national hero, 
the public mood was much different. An uneasy calm descended, but after a few days, life got back to normal. In December 1953, legend has it Beria was tried, found guilty of his crimes, and shot. Yet, as far as I'm aware, the Russian archive has never released the transcripts and records of his trial. Beria, like Molotov, was a crucial figure in the early Cold War and was just as influential in domestic Soviet politics as Hoover was in American domestic politics. Had Beria had survived the coup attempt, the Soviet Union might have been plunged into a civil war. Moreover, if his reforms had gone through, the Cold War might have ended sooner or in a different way than it did in 1991. Both counterfactual questions we will never have the answer to. If you enjoy this show, make sure to tune in next time. We have some new interview episodes in the works for you guys, and our next episode in the series will focus on the role and influence of the American Mafia in the early Cold War, so make sure you tune in for that. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon contributors for making this show possible. If you like this show or any of our past episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you're already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.